Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Pat Bills. It's already been said. I am the uh, proud nephew of Kyle and Nadine Bills, the proud uh, grandson of Don and Ellen Bills. Uh, I've got Bills all through me. So when people ask me where I'm from, I am not from Texas. Uh, I'm a missionary to the state of Texas. If you aren't familiar with Texas history, uh, Tennessee did not perform as well as they should have at the Alamo. So I am there to help redeem what has been lost for decades upon decades. So the real color orange that I bleed is orange. It's not burnt orange. And I am grateful that I have something to cheer for as a Tennessean living in Texas. So thank you. But I didn't come here to talk about football. I came here to share a word of God with you as you are the people of God. I want to invite you to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read this text over us. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, which I happen to believe that's the Bible Jesus read. So if you have a tablet or a phone, you can follow along with me there. I'm glad some of you laughed. That really was a joke. joke. Um, I, I love this church family so much. Uh, So much of this church family is bound up in who I am and who I've become. And I just want to say thank you again for all the work that you do here in Franklin, the work that you do with Frank Town and the various other ministries. You do realize you matter as the Fourth Avenue Church, right? That the kingdom of God flourishes because of the work that you do. And I don't want you to forget that. It really does matter. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 35. Let me just read this over us, then I want to pray, and then we'll see what God might have to say. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, pour through me your gifts of preaching, of teaching, of story, and even imagination. As we dare to imagine what it might look like to live into a world that Jesus created. God, we love you deeply, and we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would indeed come and be among us and remind us of your presence, for it's in your name that I pray, amen. 
One of my favorite authors and mentors, even though he doesn't know he's one of my mentors, is Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nouwen is, is dead. That's probably why he doesn't know he's a mentor. But he, he's written many things. And one of the striking things about Nouwen's life is that he lived a career as a scholar at Notre Dame University teaching theology. But then there was something missing and he decided to transition to Canada and live amongst the mentally handicapped folks of the large community in Toronto. And it was in this presence of a handicapped community that Nowen wrote some of his most forming works. I tell you that story because that has spoken so much to me as a sign of spiritual maturity that I, I wanted to dip my toe in that water. So at the beginning of this school year, I decided to add something to an already full plate, and I am now a bus monitor for the Mesquite Independent School District for special education buses. Now, before you congratulate me on how honorable this is, which it, I guess it could be that, but it has been such a wonderful reminder of who I am not. <laughs> Sped kids have no filters. They tell you exactly what's on their mind. I have one child, her name is Aaliyah, and she just calls me Mr. Pat in this really low voice. Mr. Pat, my glasses are purple. Mr. Pat, did you see that sign? Mr. Pat, there's donuts. Mr. Pat, are your shoes gray? Mr. Pat, my shoes are brown. I counted one day, she said Mr. Pat 107 times. But a few weeks ago, Aaliyah decided to make a comment on a watch I was wearing, and she looked right at me, and she said, Mr. Pat, my grandmother has that same watch. <laughs> Aaliyah, I don't want to look like your grandmother. But it reminded me that we need to be reminded of who we are, because we live in a world that tells us we're supposed to be great. We're supposed to be important. We're supposed to matter. I was watching the Tennessee game last night, and have you seen this Caesar Sportsbook commercial come on? Where everybody can be a Caesar? That is such a strong testimony to the way our culture invites us into thinking about who we are. You can be great, and you should be great. Greatness is defined by how much money you make, where you live, and how many people follow you. But you know that. Because you wouldn't be here if you didn't know that. But what's interesting is how I believe the local church has bought into that Caesar story. The local church has decided to define success as greatness. And we measure success not by discipleship, but by membership. We measure success not by how many people are growing close to Jesus, but how many people show up and profess that Jesus might be Lord, even though we might not be sure. This morning, I want to remind you and me of a critical conversation in the Gospel of Mark that reminds us of why discipleship matters because discipleship is not just a matter of who you are but how you are. 
And churches need this desperately. My church needs this desperately. I've heard that you have a new vision at 4th Avenue to be disciples. Am I right? Discipleship is not just a who question. It is also a how question. And I believe the gospel of Mark says this very clearly. But it doesn't start with chapter 10. I want to back up and give you kind of some insight into how we arrive at this moment of the request of James and John in chapter 10. If you'll notice the way the book of Mark is written, there's a particular literary flow, which is a really smart way to say Mark writes in a particular way. Have you ever read a novel by John Grisham or one of your favorite authors? And you can tell it's that particular author that's writing this because of their style. All the gospel writers have a particular style. And Mark's style is very quick. It moves. It's full of verbs. There's not even a birth story. Mark begins with John the Baptist declaring, there's one who's coming and guess who it is? It's Jesus. And then all of a sudden in Mark 1.15, we see Jesus announcing to the world, repent, believe the good news. Because the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And for the next several chapters, Mark is trying to invite people to look at who Jesus is. Mark tells a story of several healings right after he calls the disciples And the crowds are amazed. If you go back and look at Mark chapter 1 in verse 27, they asked, they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Who is this who touches people with fever, who lays hands on lepers? Who is this? And in chapter 4, when Jesus stills a storm notice what the disciples ask and they were filled with great awe in verse 41 and said to one another who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him over and over again mark is taking pain staking risks to say this is who Jesus is. And it culminates in chapter 8 when Jesus is traveling and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And you remember what Peter says? He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one who is to come. That is the answer to who you are. And I believe the disciples really believe this. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that Jesus is the leader of the team. They are convinced that without Jesus, none of this would be possible. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories about Stacy King. Do you all know Stacy King that used to play for the Chicago Bulls? Don't nod your head this way. Very few people know who Stacy King is. Stacy King was a rookie when Michael Jordan was in his prime. And Michael Jordan was playing the Boston Celtics. And Michael Jordan dumped 69 points on the Celtics in the garden. And they were interviewing some of the team, and they interviewed Stacey King after the game. And they asked Stacey King, 
What are you going to remember about this night that Michael Jordan scored 69 points? And without hesitation, Stacy King replied, what I'm going to remember about tonight is that tonight is the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> what a great model for discipleship. Today is the day that we unite with Jesus and score one for the kingdom of God. But it's not us. It's because we've got Jesus on our team. And that's where the disciples are right here in chapter 8. They've got the one who stills the storm. They've got the one that heals the paralyzed people. They've got the one that makes deaf people hear. They know who Jesus is. But something changes. And in chapter 8, Jesus has another conversation with his disciples and it starts in verse 31 and Mark is doing this on purpose when he says then Jesus began to teach them that's just not some add-on Mark is saying look there's a transition that's about to happen Jesus is going to lean in and teach the disciples something new and he taught them that the son of man must undergo great suffering be rejected by the elders the chief priests the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And you know how the story goes. Peter says, I don't think so. And Jesus doesn't just respond, you know, Peter, I really appreciate that perspective, but that's not exactly correct. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, let's study the Torah a little bit longer. No, Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Don't you think that's pretty strong language? But what I would like to suggest and maybe even argue is that Jesus is not correcting Peter on who he is, but rather how he was to be who he is. Because it's not just about showing up and acknowledging who Jesus is, but it's how Jesus chose to become king. And over the next several chapters, Two more times, Jesus gathers his disciples and says, Look, fellas, I am going to suffer and die. And this cross is not just something we talk about, it's something you get to carry. And for centuries, the church has shown up and lived in the tension of not just who Jesus is, but how Jesus came to accomplish what God intended. And so we sing, where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all the way. And I want to say, are you sure? Really? All to Jesus, I surrender All to him I freely give. Are are you sure? Because Jesus has this moment where he invites the disciples into the how in addition to the who. And so we get to chapter 10. And James and John decide to ask Jesus a question. And I love the way... The Chosen has depicted James and John. Do you remember what their nicknames were? The Sons of Thunder. And James and John 
have a question for Jesus. And it's an interesting question because it reminds me of my own children. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You have kids, right? Does that sound familiar? And Jesus says, well, why don't you tell me what you want me to do for you? And I, I think we, we read into a lot of the motives of James and John, but let's pretend for just a moment and give James and John the benefit of the doubt and just assume that James and John really do recognize that Jesus is number one, but because they are the sons of thunder, they want to be his number two. They want to be the protectors and defenders of Jesus, especially if someone comes and wants to kill him. Jesus, we know we're not number one, but if we can be number two and sit with you in glory, that's what we want. And what does Jesus say? Mm, I don't know. You still don't get how I'm doing this. And I think this is such a good word for churches that are filled with people that show up and they want to worship who Jesus is, but I am not convinced they want to worship how Jesus accomplishes his mission. I looked at your sign this morning. It said the 4th Avenue Church of Christ. What's interesting is that it didn't say the 4th Avenue Church of any other person, any other preacher, any other elder. I mean, it kind of hurts my feelings when I pull into my church and it says the Highland Oaks Church of Christ because there's a part of me that says, I wanted to say the Highland Oaks Church of Pat. People ask me a lot of times, is this your church? And everything within me wants to go, why, yes, it is my church. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. As one very wise scholar said, the first word of the church should not be church. It should be Christ. There is a way of seeing ourselves that ought to matter to how we exist as a church Church should not be the path of least resistance. Church should be the path of most resistance. Why? Because that's who Jesus came to be. He came to suffer and to die. And as one of my favorite black preachers says, his glory was gory. And his coronation was a crucifixion. And it's time for the church to wake up to what it means to be great because our definition of greatness if it aligns up with Jesus's definition of greatness may not look so great and Jesus reminds them yet again for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you know what I call this in chapter 10 and in Mark chapter 8, I call it a Cousin Eddie moment. You've seen Christmas Vacation, right? Cousin Eddie shows up to the Griswold family Christmas. And Eddie is this blundering kind of idiot of a person. But there's one of my favorite lines in Christmas Vacation that's emblazoned on t-shirts that we use in our home all the time based on a conversation that's too long to explain, Eddie looks at Clark and says, are you serious? You serious, Clark? I think that's what the disciples are saying to Jesus. 
are you serious? I mean, are you really going to die? You, you do understand this was not the Roman way. Leaders led by power in the first century because power was through a sword. And the stronger you were, the weaker everyone else became. This was the world in which Jesus lived. Whoever had the most power won. There was no middle class. You either had or you had not. Who you ate with was who you actually were. And so Jesus' entire ministry is based upon demonstrating how God was to be in the world. He was among the poor. He was among the margins. He invited everybody to the table. And you know who didn't like it? Religious people. You, me, sitting in churches saying, surely God can't be like that. Are you serious, Clark? Jesus says, I'm not just serious, I am deadly serious. And if you really want to follow me and be a church of Christ, here's what this means. So as this church family, like so many other churches, are looking for a preacher, and you may call them a lead minister. That is scary language. That's what I'm titled. And that scares me to death. I don't want to be the lead minister. According to Jesus, I should be the last minister. According to Jesus, I'm not a servant leader. I'm a servant follower. Jesus doesn't call leaders. Jesus calls followers. To do what? To come and die. So what does this look like? This is how I know God is in this message because, um, Nancy, you stole my outline word for word before communion. But it's right here again in Mark chapter 10, just to let you know that, you know, Nancy isn't just full of lots of fancy words. Mark chapter 10, after he hears the request of James and John, he gives them a few things to think about on this how of discipleship. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Isn't it interesting that Jesus acknowledges to the disciples that there is deep mystery in what they are asking. They can't comprehend what they are asking. Mystery is part of the work of God. You can't always predict how things turn out. See Abraham, see Moses, see Ruth, see Jacob, see any character in the story of Scripture who tried to predict how things would come out and they just couldn't. This is modeled in the church as it unfolds in Luke's second volume known as Acts. It's full of mystery. Peter didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think I may go have a conversation with a Gentile named Cornelius. It was part of the Holy Spirit's mysterious work. And the disciples had the sense enough to be aware that they couldn't possibly have all of these things figured out. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples right before he ascended? Right there in Acts chapter 1, the disciples say, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Is now the time that you are going to reveal the big how that you're going to be king? And you remember what Jesus says, times and dates, you don't know anything about. 
but you need to be witnesses for how I have lived my life. And part of the how is through this deep sense of mystery. So at my church, I've got my own youth group at home. I have four children. And even though the oldest is 20, you know, his prefrontal cortex still isn't entirely developed. And our life is just one long mystery trip. And I'm grateful for our student ministry because our youth pastor at home does this retreat that he calls a mystery trip. And this may alarm some of you as parents, but he doesn't tell the students where they're going. They show up and they go on a mystery trip. And the whole idea is to have something orchestrated for the students so they can experience the not knowing the mystery of God. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? So why is it as adults and in grown-up church, we are so uncomfortable with mystery? We just have to know when and where and the times and the dates If we're going to follow Jesus, maybe we ought to listen to Jesus say, you really don't know. Subtext, and maybe you need to be okay with the not knowing. Because there's part of the Holy Spirit that cannot be manipulated or decided by you. Because you're following Jesus. I like what one author says. You can't run faster than the one you are following. And if we're following Jesus, we have to at least be open to mystery. Uh, Jesus also says, after he tells them he's gonna, they're going to be baptized uh, with the same baptism and drink the same cup, Jesus says, are, are you able? You know, the idea there is, are, are you willing? Are, are you willing to suffer? Suffering is not a, a fun thing to talk about, is it? Shake your, shake your head this way. Are you, are you alive out there? Yeah. I, I never know anybody who says, sign me up for suffering. That's what I want to do. I'm reminded of a story of a missionary who was traveling in Africa. And the missionary, of course, was from the United States. And this indigenous African pastor was there. And the missionary just looked at the African pastor after seeing you know, villages and villages that have been uh, ransacked by all kinds of evil and harmful things. And the American pastor says, I am so sorry you have had to experience all this. And the African said, that's interesting that you say that. And that's actually what makes it different here in Africa than in the United States. Because in the United States, you try to avoid suffering. Here in Africa, we expect it sounds like Jesus. Suffering is a part of the story of God. You cannot get around it. When Jesus says to take up your cross, I, I really do believe that's a choice we make to take up a cross. And taking up a cross does not mean that you are a responsible person for taking care of someone sick in your home. You hear it described as, well, that's just my cross to bear. Well, how is that any different than any normal, decent human being? Your cross to bear is your choice to give up and to sacrifice and do something because you are committed to the how of Jesus as much as you are the who of Jesus. 
suffering might be the only way to know Jesus more intimately. Some of you will know who this is on the next picture. This is one of my heroes in the faith. This is Lynn Anderson. Lynn Anderson would, would kind of be, he's not really Michael Jordan. Uh, he's more like Larry Bird of the uh, preaching community. He wrote several books called They Smell Like Sheep. He was in ministry for over 30 years. He founded Hope Network. This is a very wise person. So you can imagine my excitement when I first got into ministry and Lynn Anderson gathered 10 or 12 people that were about my age, in their 30s when we first started. And we had a great session with Lynn, and Lynn says, I want to leave you with one thing. He goes, I want to tell you what I'm going to pray for each and every one of you as pastors of your church. And I was so excited to hear what Lynn Anderson was about to tell me, what he was going to pray for me. And Lynn Anderson looked at all of us, and he said, I am going to pray that you would suffer. Because suffering is the only way to follow Jesus. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate the prayers. But guess what? He's right. Maybe that's why good brother James says in chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it joy because suffering comes if you follow Jesus. Mystery, suffering, and, and then Jesus gives the great conclusion and says, actually, it's not about how the Gentiles lead and are in power. It's about being a servant. And I love this short line here. When Jesus says in verse 43, it is not so among you. You don't get to lead like the world leads. You don't get to exercise power as the world exercises power. It's not so among you. I want to be a part of a church that's a not so among you church. I want to be a part of a church that is consistently asking, what can we do to be better disciples rather than just better members? What do we need to do to align ourselves with the how of Jesus? And so we think about leadership and we're mindful of the ways our leaders lead. And it's tragic when you start looking at churches. I heard a preacher say the other day, and I knew this, but it didn't really sit with me until I heard him say this. The number one podcast in the United States of America right now is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This isn't the number one podcast among Christian podcasts. It's the number one podcast in the United States. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's an in-depth look at how a church was led in a particular way and almost disappeared overnight. Because their lead pastor was a bully, a tyrant, he was misogynistic, and did not embody the values of Jesus. Why are people so fascinated by that? Maybe it's because they just need a warning of how Jesus came, not just who Jesus was.
Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus was our coach? You know, some people think that a coach like this would be great to have. You know, I wouldn't even let my own children play for Bobby Knight. I, re I really wouldn't. I mean, th this man would hurl chairs onto the floor and would scream at the referees and yell obscenities. And he ruled with incredible power. But everybody said, oh, but look at the results. He's a great coach. Well, how do you define greatness? What, what does a great basketball coach look like? Let me show you what a great basketball coach looks like. I hesitated to even show this picture because I know the deep emotion that Kyle Bills holds. And, and I, and I want to use this as a trump card, but I, I, I do need to play this trump card because there, there is such a stark contrast in not just who a coach is, but how they coach. Many of you may not know this, but Kyle Bills was actually recruited to go be an assistant at Wake Forest. That's a pretty big deal to be recruited to go coach in the ACC from high school. But he told them no. Do you know why? Because he had a mentor tell him that, Kyle, you've got one of two choices. You can have a family or you can go coach at Wake Forest. And he chose his family, and it wasn't just his family, it was this family too. These are the type of leaders that Jesus invites us to look like. You think about suffering. Think about mystery. What would it look like if a church really got serious? Not just about the who of Jesus, but also the how of Jesus. How might that inform the ways you move forward as a church, would it and could it change your measurement of success? Every Sunday, I say the same thing to my church at the end of a sermon. I say, let those who have ears to hear, hear the word of God. And I completely stole that from some other preacher that I deeply admire but that preacher stole it from Jesus. Because when Jesus taught, I really think he was trying to tune the ears of those listening to a greater story, a different narrative than the one the world was presenting. So this morning, as we continue to worship, as we continue to listen and consider who it is we follow, Jesus wants to look at each of you and say, what do you want me to do for you? This is how I'm going to do it. The only question is, are you willing to follow that kind of Messiah? And so, let those who have ears to hear, hear the word of God.